My name is Sarah Lee, and welcome to the Influence Watch podcast. There is a lot of discussion lately around the Second Amendment. Uh, if you watched the State of the Union address last night, you heard President Biden shout out uh, an exhortation to ban assault weapons. This is nothing new. Um, it could be the result of a recent case out of New York, the Bruin case, the Supreme Court case, dealing with uh, concealed carry in that state and the repercussions of that across the country. Today, we have a guest who is an expert on the Second Amendment and an expert on firearms, um, quite frankly. His name is Larry Correa. He's written a book uh, published by Regnery called In Defense of the Second Amendment. He joins us today to kind of talk about the Second Amendment, clarify what that what that is, talk about the gun culture, talk about some of the responses to uh, the Second Amendment, the fight for the Second Amendment to preserve it, uh, responses to that from the left, and just kind of get into this issue as we at uh, Capital Research Center begin a process of looking into the funding into the groups that are anti-2A. So, Larry, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me on. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, as always, Mike Watson is with me today, our research director. He's the usual host, but today I'm sitting in the uh, the host chair. So hi, Mike. Hello. Uh, so we're going to kind of tag team and, and ask you some questions here. So I read the book. Um, it's a good book. I'm going to go ahead and recommend it, especially if you want to learn anything about this sort of you know, I think there's this idea if if you don't know much about firearms and you don't know much about gun culture and you're not a huge Second Amendment defender, it's sort of a scary, daunting thing to learn about. But your book kind of kind of demystifies some of that. Is that was that the goal of this book? Uh, yeah, I, I wrote it basically with the idea that I wanted to kind of create like a, a handy dandy guide to the debate uh, over the Second Amendment. I wrote it not just for my people who are already on my side. I wanted to help them articulate better arguments and then arm them with all the facts and uh, sites all in one convenient place, but also for people who are kind of on the fence, who are thinking about it, um, who maybe have some misunderstandings, who maybe have been lied to by the media. And I just wanted to be able to get that out there and and see if I can help them a little bit and try to move the needle on the debate. Uh, So far, it seems like it's it's, uh, actually doing what I hope and... uh, uh, it's been very well received. So I, I'm just hoping it kind of will make a difference for some of these people to kind of come to terms with this and to come to a better understanding of the Second Amendment and what it's for. Okay, so let's back up just a little bit. Tell me how, like, what makes you an expert? I know I've got your bio in front of me, so I know the answer to that question. But I'd like to hear you explain it yourself. And also, um, uh, briefly, tell us about your, your, uh, your work as a writer as well, which is, I think, an interesting part of your story. Yeah, it's actually interesting because a lot of times when you have a book like this written on a political topic, it's going to come from an academic. Uh, It's going to come from uh, somebody who's a scholar on the subject. Uh, Me, I'm best known as a writer. So I'm a professional novelist. I I am a fiction writer, a storyteller. I do science fiction, fantasy. Uh, I'm a best-selling author. I'm very successful at that. However, before I became a novelist, uh, I was a gun store owner. I was a concealed weapons instructor. I was a firearms instructor. I was a competition shooter. I was involved in gun activism at my state level, and uh, basically my entire adult life was gun stuff. And uh, 
I do get into the stats a little bit in the book just because also I was, I was a military contractor and my background there was uh, finance. I was, uh, I was a number cruncher. And so that's my background. And so I am now, like I said, a successful novelist. I'm best known for like my Monster Hunter series, uh, Hard Magic, things like that, and very popular books. But uh, Regnery, the nonfiction publisher, was looking for someone who was, A, an expert on firearms, which I, which I am because my, you know, almost 30 years I've been eyeball deep in gun stuff, uh, but also someone who could tell a story, uh, someone who could uh, do an, kind of a narrative of this. So it wasn't scholarly. It wasn't a statistical analysis because, you know, the facts are on our side. Uh, but a lot of times when we uh, have this gun debate, it's all about emotions and uh, telling a, a compelling narrative. Uh, you know, and so that's why they got me. <laughs> that's what I do is I tell stories. But I also have the expertise on the guns. And so every single thing, every single thing I say in this book is uh, fact checked and cited uh, and sourced. And so and this is one of those debates where we really do have the logic and the facts on our side. But also it's time for us to get the emotion because, you know what, there is nothing worse and more emotional than being defenseless uh, because the government made you that way when terrible things happen. Uh, yeah. I, I hate being made helpless. Yeah. And yeah, I'm going to let Mike jump in in a second. But when you, when you mentioned that, I'm going to open your book here because there was a quote that I really liked. Well, not a quote, but a piece of it that I really liked. You say, and it kind of speaks to what you just said. It's the part about the relentless culture war. And you say the biggest fight for the Second Amendment isn't in Congress, the courts, or state legislatures. It's in the minds of the people. And this is the, the line that hit me. There is no issue people are more passionate or ignorant about. Yeah, absolutely true. There's so much stuff out there uh, about the gun debate uh, that is just wrong. And it's constantly repeated and regurgitated. And they, they, they have this continual narrative that they just bang that drum, regardless of what the facts of any case are. And their ideas don't hold up to logical scrutiny. So one of the things I try to do in the book is I take every single thing that they throw at us, like all the usual do something arguments, and I shoot everyone down. Uh, I, I use historical examples. I use uh, logical examples. I break down how this stuff actually works in real life from my own personal experience and from other experts. Uh, and, and yeah, so the, the real key to the Second Amendment battle is in the hearts and the minds of the American people. Because too many people in America have been sold a lie for too long that the only people who have the power to defend themselves is the state. And we abdicate that to the state to take care of us. Well, except the state doesn't. Uh, they don't they don't always fulfill that responsibility. And sometimes even when they're trying their best to keep people safe, they're just they can't. I mean, just it's just an, it's a logistical possibility. Um, so I get into that a lot. And, uh, you know, I, I really try to appeal to people's uh, sense of worth you know, that you as a person, you are worth defending. Your life is worth defending. Your your family is worth defending. You can't just um, abdicate that responsibility and kick it down the road and hope that the cops come in time to save you because that's not how it works in real life. What do you think, Mike? What do you think about all this? Well, I mean, I've, I've got a couple of a, a couple of thoughts that I'd like to to bounce off uh, bounce off y'all. Um, so. I guess my first question is sort of why now, you know, the Supreme court has not, has never been more pro the second amendment than it ever, than it ever has with the Bruin decision building off Heller and McDonald. Uh, if you look at sort of the trend of, you know, the legality of, con of concealed carry over my lifetime, I'm in my early thirties. 
you know, it's gone from banned in most places to, I don't know what the number is, but almost 20 states have permitless, if you can pass the background check to buy a pistol, you can carry it concealed. Um, the idea of an outright ban on handguns has gone from a live political issue to prohibited by the Supreme Court and a 30-70 opposed issue anyway. Why write your book now? Well, actually, one of the things was is because it was in uh, response to the Bruin decision uh, is when I is when I did this. And a big part of this, and I'm going to I'm going to actually uh, draw on an argument made by Cam Edwards. I was on his show a couple weeks ago and he said something is uh, I hadn't thought of it this way, uh, but he's from Virginia. And he was using the example that after Brown versus Board of Education in the civil rights battle, uh, the Democrats uh, basically threw a tantrum. So the Supreme Court came out and said very specifically, you can't segregate. So what happened for the next five years? The the Democrats did every possible thing they could to throw every law at the books uh, that they possibly could across every state. And some states even got rid of public schools entirely. They just for several years just stopped having public school rather than comply with the Supreme Court. We're in that same thing right now. We just had the Bruin decision. It was very strong decision. Uh, we do have, we are winning at the state level in most of the country. We're now up to 25 states, almost should be 26 this year, hopefully with con- uh, constitutional carry. Huge victories for us. However, just like back in the civil rights movement, the Democrats are once again doing the same thing. They're, they're kind of throwing a tantrum. If you look right now, we have, I believe, seven different states. These are kind of our super blue holdout states. We have seven different states who are doing really, really hardcore anti-gun legislation right now. And even if it does get thrown out in court, that process before it to get thrown out in court is going to take four, five, six, seven years and millions of dollars on behalf of the attorneys of the client of the of the defendants. And who knows how many people are going to get rolled up and hurt in this stuff in the meantime. Also, at the federal level, you have things like the ATF is doing massive overreach right now. Uh, if you guys are familiar with the, their new reg, regulations concerning pistol braces, um, that's huge. Uh, they did the same thing with bump stocks. Uh, and that finally got shot down in court, but it took four years for it to get to that point. The Fifth Circuit said, you can't do this. So the, the new ATF regulation is going to make anywhere between 10 and 40 million Americans a felon overnight unless we bend the knee and comply to their, their arbitrary rules they just made up without Congress passing a law. So the, real, the thing to me is like, yeah, the time is ripe. We are winning. We are actually, and I go into this in the book a lot with the stats and the demographics, we're winning the culture war. We're winning the legal war in courts. We're winning the culture war. We are not yet winning the federal legislative level because I go into this in the book too. There's too many people on the nominally pro-gun party side that aren't, or they're too squishy on it. Um, And we are winning, but in the process of us winning, they're going to push back extra hard with every single thing they can think of. They're, they're pulling out all the stops and, uh, there's new new developments even since I wrote the book of things that I didn't even think of uh, that are new new lines of attack. I, I do go into the book about the legislature or the the frivolous lawsuits uh, against firearms, uh, but now they're they're trying to do things like lawsuits concerning advertising. They're trying to put pressure on banks and credit card companies not to deal with the gun business. And so it's it's kind of a religious battle for them. Yeah, we've we've had this the the issue with merchant codes that was spearheaded by amalgamated bank, which is deeply involved with organized labor and the Democratic Party. 
Yep, absolutely. So it's one of those, they're definitely coming at it from every every prong of attack they can, and they will continue to do so until this issue is put to bed once and for all. I would love for that to be in my lifetime. Yeah, and I think too, you know, we might be winning the culture war on this, and I am going to ask you in just a second to tell me what the Second Amendment means, because I think that's the core of this, and we need to talk about that. But it's one thing to win the culture war, but look at what's happening with a lot of what the progressive side of the political aisle has been pushing. It's not all very popular and yet it's in our schools and yet the businesses are adopting things like ESG. Um, So whether or not the second amendment uh, remains popular is almost immaterial because like you mentioned at the federal level and legislatively um, they can still do things to make it, you know, something difficult for people to retain that right. Um, so, yeah, so I, I completely understand that this is a, this is a fight that's, that's not going anywhere. And I do think that kind of, you know, Mike mentioned the amalgamated bank. He just was quoted in a piece about that very story. Um, this is what we work on at CRC. We try to look at what's going to be happening behind the scenes to keep pushing this fight. That's not very popular. Absolutely. That's very important work you guys are doing on that because um, uh, a lot of people don't realize just the depth that this stuff goes to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's all, a lot of it's way behind the scenes. And so, so yes, yeah, so I'm looking forward to getting more into that project. So let's back up a little bit and, and talk about the second amendment. You know, I think that one of the wins in the culture war from my perspective, I'm sure there are other perspectives, probably better perspectives. Um, but you know, one of the wins is that I think we've dis- we've finally convinced people that the Second Amendment is not about hunting. <laughs> so yeah. tell me what it is. What is the Second Amendment? The Second Amendment is uh, our unalienable God-given right to defend ourselves from threats of violence using useful tools up to and including not just regular criminals, but our own tyrannical government, should our government do evil to us. Now, a lot of people don't like to go there, and for the longest time, the gun rights lobby got very squishy, and they would um, they would not talk about this stuff. And that's why we got stuff like sporting purposes uh, or or hunting. You know what? I am a competition shooter. I, I love shooting for fun. However, that's a perk. That's not what the Second Amendment's about. Hunting is great. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm not saying it's not, but that's not what the Second Amendment is for. The Second Amendment was installed. I was put there specifically by our founders as the big red button on the Constitution. It is the kill switch on our experiment with our constitutional republic. It's 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 the ultimate check and balance. I know we always we talk in school when we're little kids, we talk about you know the checks and balances of the three branches of government. Well, this is another check and balance, only this is not the government checking itself. This is the people checking the government. You can't have true epic tyranny like we see around the world unless you have a disarmed populace. It's just logistically impossible. Um, and a lot of these people we're dealing with, they look at they look at uh, communist China and the government of Xi Jinping and that they see that as aspirational. They would love to be able to have a society where just the experts or whoever they appoint as the experts make all the decisions for all the people at all the times and we have no say. And you can't have that with an armed populace. So the Second Amendment is kind of a linchpin, cornerstone uh, kind of issue 
on this overall bigger question of whether people own their government or does their government own the people. And that's really what it comes down to. The Second Amendment is absolutely vital. It's our insurance policy. Mm-hmm. So here, here I'll, I'll, pl- I'll take the role of the devil's advocate. Uh, I, you have so, and I, I, I suspect the devil's advocate would offer two points. One, you know, to the extent that the well-organized militia was the def- was for the defense of the state against external threats, that's been superseded by the standing army, and then. Point two, regarding the question of that, you know, in case of tyrannical government break glass situation, uh, you know, and and this is something that President Biden brings up all the time, you know, the standing army has nukes and F-15s and, you know, ballistic missile submarines and tanks and all sorts of wonderfully expensive military hardware. What would be the point? Yeah, that that is actually that that is a common one that's brought up. In fact, I have a I have a chapter in the book. So so it's really good too, Mike. (laughs) That chapter is excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, because all right, so I I had to put my uh, I had to put my military contractor hat on for that chapter. Um, Because here's the thing, Joe Biden likes to make that joke. Uh Ha ha! What's your AR-15? You you need F-15s to stand up against the government. And I'm like, tell that to the Taliban, buddy. I mean, here's the thing. The world's most powerful and advanced military coalition in history spent 20 years trying to pacify a nation where at any given time we were fighting approximately 20, 22,000 insurgents. That's it. If you think, it's hard to pin down the actual numbers, but at times it was much less. So you think about it, you're going to take a nation that's far, far, far larger, and you're going to take a force that's orders of magnitude larger. And you're going to pacify it in a way that uh, there is no front lines. There, there is no clear uh, line of safety. There is no behind the enemy lines here. It's the whole country. Um, I go into it logistically. I go into it uh, statistically. Because basically, if you take the number of gun owners in America and you say that 99.9% of them comply with whatever the government says and only a fraction of a percent gets uppity, you're still looking at a force that is huge. I mean, or like I said, orders of magnitude larger than what we fought in Afghanistan. I go into Afghanistan, Vietnam, Iraq, uh, the, the opening parts of the Ukraine war, uh, where the Ukrainian government was handing out AK-47s like candy to anybody who is willing to fight invaders. I mean, that's, it works. Uh, and, and also I get into like the, the, the practicalities of this. So like advanced West systems, like Eric Swallow is the first one that I'm aware of that brought up using nukes. And that guy, <laughs> I, yeah, actually, the lawyers made the, the Regnery's lawyers made me tone down what I said about Eric Swalwell, just so you know. And you saw what made it into the book. Yeah, it's pretty um, good. <laughs> yeah. So Eric Swalwell was the first one. He was like, well, we have nukes. Well, it's like, Eric, what are you going to do with nuclear weapons? I mean, so let's say Oklahoma City gets uppity. Uh, you're going to you're going to nu- nuke Oklahoma. Democrat voters live there, too, Eric. Um and it's interesting because they, well, we have drones, we have tanks, we have Apaches, whatever. Insert the weapon system here. Speaking as a guy who used to be one of the people that maintained those systems and built those systems, the Venn diagram of the of gun owners and the people who keep those things in the air are, are a circle. Okay, um, I would say probably eighty percent of the people I worked with are on my side politically, and and. I'll, 
so they're saying that they're just going to like use those advanced weapon systems to kill the friends and family and loved ones of the people who keep them in the air is, is madness. Also, I mean, realistically speaking, we're not talking about uh, north versus south where there's a clear line down the middle where there's a battle line. You know, there's a no man's land of good guys on one side, bad guys on the other. No, in real life, the only thing that separates those advanced weapon systems from the people they plan to bomb them with is a chain link fence, like literally. Um, and and my people are on both sides of the fence. So so when Joe Biden is throwing that out there, it's just it's crazy and it's it's so flippant. Um, and it's so, it's so ignorant and it's like, quit pushing the big, quit poking at the big red button, Joe. Um, I don't think he knows what he's talking about, but then you, you have stuff like the, the last time Joe Biden, well, he did state of union again, but the couple weeks before at the Martin Luther King, uh, junior memorial service, Joe Biden was just joking about using F-15s to kill American citizens. Now just putting aside how crazy that is that we've gotten to the point that American president could be flipping about something like that. Uh, Martin Luther King was a guy who fought for peaceful resolution uh, of issues and had his second amendment rights denied by the federal government and by the state government. He tried to get a concealed weapons permit so he could defend himself and was denied his rights by the government. And so to have Joe Biden sit there at that guy's memorial, a man devoted to peace, and talk about how he can just kill us for wanting to exercise the same rights that Martin Luther King wanted to exercise, uh, and he's going to kill us with fighter jets that we paid for. So it's 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 insane. It's madness, and I really, really wish these guys would back away from that. But It's a bit insulting, too, isn't it? It is so crazy. Um, one of the things you say in your book on that subject, which I thought was one of the best parts of the book, is where you were talking about the five special forces guys talking about uh, how the, and you're like, I'd never print what they said in a book, uh, but talking about how they basically could take down a city like Chicago in a, in, the, in a matter of days and how bad it would be. And he, and then you said, and guess which side of the political aisle they fall on. Yeah. Uh, I, I, when I was, when my, my gun store used to be one block from Utah national Get, guard headquarters and we had a special forces group there. And so Every drill weekend, it was just a sea of camouflage. It was, you know, guys I was selling guns to. But it was interesting, though. Yeah, so they picked Chicago because it was a city they'd all been to. And there was just a hypothetical discussion amongst professionals. Um, and like I said, I would never put their ideas in a thriller or a fiction novel or a science fiction novel because I wouldn't want to give crazy bad people any ideas. Mm-hmm. But it was all stuff that regular people, we don't think of. Mm-hmm. Like, I've had similar conversations. And for our government was, to be, uh, like you mentioned, so a bunch of SWAT team guys. Yeah. And it's like, well, we can just kill Americans with impunity and nothing bad is going to happen. I was like, no, no, very much. Uh, we've seen around the world what happens when you try to do stuff like this. And you, you were talking about a population with more guns than people. And, and actually the skill sets far better than any insurgency that we've ever fought before. Like I said, having this dinner with a bunch of SWAT team guys in a major metro American city, like the guys who actually are boots on the ground, um, first line of defense on this kind of thing. And they are like, no, this is insane. This is madness. Stop. D- don't go down this road, government. You don't know what you're dealing with. Um, so yeah, though the Second Amendment very much is in play. It is, is still a very valid thing. Uh, it's interesting to see the dumb politicians who don't know how any of this stuff works 
talk about how they could just use these weapons. Whereas the guys that actually would be the boots on the ground with those weapons, dealing with them, and who have seen combat and who have seen insurgencies, are all like, no, don't, stop, this is crazy. And so I just pray every day that our leaders will have wisdom. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'll see how that shakes out. I'm not, I'm say, that's a heavy prayer. <laughs> yeah, I'm not getting my hopes up. I'm not saying I'm getting my hopes up on that one, but, you know, I'll throw that out there. Well, moving, moving, moving a little closer to, you know, sort of things that are ongoing now, you know, opponents of, of, the Second Amendment generally focus one of, one of their sort of core focuses is on the high rate of firearm firearm. They call it gun violence. What they mean is firearm crime. What they add to it are, of course, firearm suicides. Um, um, and obviously, we have more of both firearm homicide and firearm suicide than our European counterparts. Uh, how do you address that question uh, when it's brought up? Yeah, actually, I, uh, so so in defense of the Second Amendment, I actually have a uh, what I call the stats chapter um, where I start going to those comparisons because they always love to compare America to like they pick some tiny homogenous Scandinavian country. Right. And it's like, why do we have more murders than Denmark? I'm like, well, <laughs> I mean, Denmark would fit in Los Angeles County with, you know, so uh, let's let's think about it. But no, but I actually get into that. So first off, they lie their butts off about the stats. Um, like you said, they do include suicides. They do include things like police officers uh, in justified shootings of criminals. They include things like regular citizens shooting criminals in self-defense. I, and I also go into great depth how often guns are used to defend life versus take life um, uh, in, in a criminal way. I, and it's a, even using the absolute most cherry pick stats from the anti-gun side, uh, we win hands down by far. Yeah. And it's, it's kind it's of an nebulous. unknown number, right? As I recall from the book. It's very nebulous. But I, I, I in the book, I, I go through and I quote 14 different surveys. The, the, the average of those is 2 million. Mm -hmm. And if you take even the very, very smallest one used by like Moms Demand Action and Every Town for Gun Safety, the, all the Bloomberg funded groups their number is still much, much uh, uh, smaller or they're much, I'm sorry, much larger than the number of murders uh, and so, so on and so forth. But then I get into different countries. It's actually interesting because they always act like things like mass, mass killings or mass shootings are a uniquely American phenomena. You'll see people in the news. It only happens here. No, that's not true. In fact, I demonstrate conclusively that that is not true. They do happen elsewhere. They happen all the time. Uh, and even in countries that have gun control, that is inconceivable to Americans. Like Americans would revolt on the spot if given that level of gun control. And um, they still have them there. Uh, they have them in countries with absolute uh, control of, of weapons. I, I documented cases out of Asia from countries where literally the only people who have guns are the military. And they had military members committing mass killings. And then everywhere else, if they couldn't get a hold of a gun, which they did usually because just, they just get a gun. There's billions of them in the world. You can't uninvent them. Um, we had situations uh, where they just build bombs. Uh, other countries have bombings. Uh, or other countries have people drive trucks down the sidewalk. Um, and, and so basically what it comes down to is evil people are going to be evil. In all these situations, what actually stops the mass killer is a violent response. And that violent response can either be quick because somebody who was there was able to provide it, or it's going to be slow because you have to wait for the law enforcement officers to arrive. 
That's all it comes down to. So allowing people to have guns is defense in depth. And they stop this stuff early. And I go into like shootings. I go into the numbers of, of how many sh uh, these mass killings are stopped by citizens who are nearby. Uh, and the number of people killed and injured is much, much lower. Or versus uh, scenarios where the only possible responder was the police. And uh, I go through that. And also gun-free zones. I show rather conclusively that gun-free zones are the preferred target of mass killers. And in fact, we even know that for sure because they straight up write it in their manifestos. Uh, some of these guys have written manifestos saying, I am going to attack the following location because I know that regular people will not have guns there and I will be able to kill more people until the cops arrive. And they know that and they say that and still our politicians pretend otherwise. Yeah, I think you have a stat in your book, too, where you talk about the number of murders in red state areas, for lack of a better description, versus yep. blue cities. And it's Yeah, it's actually interesting because they talk about how America is a, a nation with a gun problem and, a, and, a, and America is a nation with a, a gun crime problem. It's really not. If you look at America as a whole... Uh, we have we, we're kind of actually kind of statistically in the middle of the pack, uh, I, and I have the whole world stats there. I'll, I'll link. Um, we're actually kind of in the middle, and more than that, America doesn't have a gun problem. A handful of blue cities have a gun problem, and in those blue cities, even they don't have a gun problem. They have a handful of neighborhoods in the entire United States. If you look at most of the U.S., it's basically Canada as far as level of danger. Uh, my county hasn't had a murder since we've had one murder in the last century, right? Oh I mean, that, and that's actually, that's pretty normal for most of rural America. Um, you have to go back to cowboy times to have more murders. But if you look at America, it's like they always say, well, the red states actually have a larger crime rate than blue. And that's that's statistical trickery because what they're talking about is like take Louisiana. Louisiana is a red state. Baton Rouge and New Orleans, however, are not red cities. Baton Rouge and New Orleans have an extremely high murder rate. And then you get, and here's the thing, you get into New Orleans, it's not just New Orleans has a high murder rate. New Orleans has specific zip codes with a high murder rate. And that's actually how it works out in all of, all of the country. Yet they, they keep coming back to gun control because like somebody in Georgia and rural Georgia or rural Idaho or suburban uh, Indiana owns a bunch of AR-15s. That is not why a bunch of people are getting killed in Chicago. Uh, and Chicago is an interesting one. I delved into Chicago specifically because Chicago has so many murders. Um, but they always say, well, Chicago's murder rate's actually not that high per capita because Chicago has such a huge population. But if you look at Chicago, once again, it comes down to just individual parts of town. And most of Chicago is fairly normal. But then you have a handful of like eight neighborhoods that are basically um, – Juarez or uh, Afghanistan level violence. And I'm not even exaggerating there. Just that's how many people get killed in those areas. And so I go into various places around America comparing the city per capita murder rate versus the country per capita, the state per capita murder rate. Uh, plus, comparing all these countries, I, I discovered too that some countries just lie their butts off. It's hilarious how much they lie. Because like, I'm like, like, how many murders the country has? China is like, we have almost no murders. Okay. <laughs> In your country with a, over a billion people, you have almost no murders. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's, I, that's totally believable. I just don't think they're qualifying, you know, detention camps as, you know, murder camps. That's, that's the no. problem. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was going to say to the, to the, to the extent that state, that uh, claim is true, it's because they're an authoritarian police state. Exactly. <laughs> 
Um, so yeah, so one thing I wanted to say, and, and we won't keep you much longer, but I'm going to go ahead and bring up the tough one, which is the mass killings, which you mass shooters, right? Which you, that's, you start the book with that. Like you jump oh, yeah. right into that. Cause that's the thing I think that makes this argument difficult for second amendment defenders, right? Um, those sort of lone gunmen, uh, who have, as you mentioned, the manifesto writers, those guys, um, or women, if those exist. Um, so part of the reason I think that you use the expression violent response, that's what stops a killer. And I, and I'm glad that you use that expression because it's something that's, it's tough language. It's hard to hear violent, especially when you're dealing with the aftermath of like a Uvalde, nobody wants to think about violence. But you're right. That's what has to be thought. It has to be thought of that way, that that's how we deal with this. And I wonder if you, if what we're looking at, and this is maybe a difficult, almost impossible question to answer, but are we so civilized that this notion of ha- like meeting violence with violence is just so distasteful to us that we're, we're damaging ourselves? I think so, yeah. We, we, we kind of went down this rabbit hole of uh, false civility where, where we've kind of like taken away the basic fundamentals of what made us a functioning society to begin with. And part of that is the old, you know, remember the old quote is like, uh, people are safe in their beds because rough men stand ready to do violence on their behalf, you know. Um, and that's really what it is. And, and with these mass killers, uh, that's what stops them is violence. It's fighting back. Uh, we have seen there is no law that you can pass that will stop someone evil from going and doing evil. That just that, that, that cannot happen. And we've seen that regardless of what the nation's laws are. There's going to be evil people who do evil. Uh, I, I so I actually hit this head on first thing out of the gate because it is the most emotional of all the subjects. It is the one that gets the preponderance of the news news coverage. It's actually they're actually statistical anomalies, and the anti-gun people lie continuously about how often they happen. They always say, "Well, there's been 35 this year already. There's 300 a year." No, there's there's more like six or 12 in any given year of things that actually fit the definition. But getting into those. What stops those is defense in depth. You can ban guns. You can make gun-free zones. You can do all, whatever you want. Uh, none of that stuff works. And we know it doesn't work. We've seen it doesn't work. But they keep doing the same old, same old. California just recently had some mass shootings. And immediately, what did the anti-gun people argue for? All the same usual gun control stuff. But guess what? That's already in effect in California. California has... it's it, It's... It's, it's their ultimate dream, uh, and they have everything. They have everything but full-on confiscation, uh, one of the, and it doesn't matter. What does stop these people is somebody responding. Now, that person might uh, shoot them, uh, might stop them that way, or they might, just be, they might just meet the resistance, and then the bad guy will retreat. The bad guy will take cover. A lot of times when their fantasy bubble gets burst, they'll kill themselves. Uh, a self-inflicted gunshot wound is one of the more common ways that these mass killing events are stopped. And I cite several in the book. And so basically the main thing is you've got to be able to fight back. That's what stops them, fighting back. And until you fight back, they're going to keep killing. It's just a function of time. And so anything that disarms the populace makes it easier for mass killers. Anything that uh, it stops us from carrying guns makes it easier. Now, carrying a gun is not for everybody. I go into this book, too. I used to be a concealed weapons instructor. Uh, carrying a gun is a personal choice. 
you got to be responsible. You got to get trained. You got to, you know, seek out that knowledge and continually improve. But that's not for everybody. And that's fine. It doesn't have to be for everybody. It's just get out of the way of the people who want to be able to do that. And those people, by extension, uh, if they're present, they're just an insurance policy for everyone else. And so, yeah, I talk, I talk in the book on this topic a lot and go into a lot of, a lot of details. Mm-hmm. What you think, Mike? I, I don't think, I don't think I have anything to add to that. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty good, right? You should, the, the first part of the book is great. And Mike is at a disadvantage because I got one book and I've had it and read it. So he hasn't had the chance to read it yet, but I'm going to give it to him. I'll send it to you. Um, so on that note, uh, Larry, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a really, really interesting conversation. And, and um, let me plug the book one more time. And then I'm going to ask you if there's anything else we want, we should be uh, putting out there for people to know. Again, it's In Defense of the Second Amendment, written by Larry Correa. Uh, forward, good forward by Nick Searcy, he may have seen on Justified. That was the show, wasn't it, Justified? Wonderful, wonderful guy. Great yeah. actor, great, great American. I yeah, love, yeah. I love and he's really funny. He's hilarious on Twitter. Um, so published by Ragnary. Great book. Can't recommend it enough. Is there anything else, Larry? I know, you know, you mentioned your Monster Hunter series. Is there anything else you want us to plug? Uh, no, I'm fine. I, 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 like I said, I'm, I am a writer. And so you can check out my books anywhere uh, that books are sold. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, so on and so forth. Audible. Also, the book is available on Audible if you prefer audiobooks. Um, yeah, and I am on Twitter. Uh, but not for the easily offended. I am, I am, uh, I am the son of Portuguese dairy farmers, and I talk that way. What's your handle on Twitter? Uh, Monster Hunter Forty Five. I'm oh, sorry, Korea Forty Five. Korea. Korea Forty Five. Um, and that is spelled C O R R E I A. People. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, we really appreciate it. That's our show for this week. Um, as always, uh, please do uh, find us anywhere you get your podcast. Give us a five-star rating. That helps us out in our search engine optimization and our reviews. Um, and we'll be back with some excellent topic next week. Mike will be back in the hosting chair. And we thank you so much for joining us.